This is not the media. This is hell. No blood for oil was an old chestnut that was polished off and remixed as the world waited for the United States to inevitably declare war on and then invade and occupy Iraq. It worked in 1990 for the forebodingly named First Iraq War, which should have tipped us all off to the plan for a second Iraq War, 13 lucky years later. And it worked in the aughts just like it worked in the or worked in the aughts just like it worked in the 90s and has worked seemingly every time the US wants to go to war. Just say it's some or just allude to some kind of war for oil. For whatever reason, we keep falling for this idea that there is a scarcity of oil or that rising oil prices are a weapon and function of war. That all power flows with oil, which is the only reason the United States is friendly to a brutal dictatorship like the one in Saudi Arabia. Well, as our guest today will argue, there's a problem with all of that. The Iraq war was not about taking over Iraq's oil wells and a necessary move to secure future energy interests and resources for the United States, nor was it a seizure of oil fields to bring more profits into the accounts of U.S. oil firms. In fact, the Iraq war was about something entirely other than oil, and a lot of the wars that are promoted use oil as a justification for war when it is not. And the idea that we are fighting over the last drops in a competition to control scarcity, a scarcity that just does not exist, we'll figure out what the Iraq war was about if not oil, in a few when we speak with political science scholar Robert Vitalis and author of Oilcraft, the myths of scarcity and security that haunt U.S. energy policy. Robert is professor of political science at the University of Pennsylvania. His earlier books include 2007's America's Kingdom, Mythmaking on the Saudi Oil Frontier, which was named one of the best books of the year by the London Guardian and an essential read by Foreign Affairs. More recently, Robert's 2015 book is entitled White World Order, Black Power Politics, The Birth of American International Relations. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap radio show, live stream, podcast host, Chuck Mertz, producing, as always, Alex Jerry. Alex, please remind us. What's this week's question from hell for our listeners? You look amazing. What's your secret? <laughs> you look amazing. What is your secret? No, I'm asking you, what is the question from hell? I know that that's your question for me, but what is the question? The sub vaudeville routine. Thank you. Uh, the person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins our new gray on black. This is hell. Trucker's cap with our logo in gray, that global logo in gray on a black cap, which you can see right now by going to our site, thisishell.com and clicking on support. You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell you look amazing what's your secret you look amazing what's your secret at our facebook page facebook.com slash this is hell radio or you can direct message it to us via twitter at this is hell radio or you can email it to either of us chuck at this is hell.com alex at this is hell.com but you have to send your response by end of show thursday following jeff Dorchin in the moment of truth when we announce our favorite and who wins the new gray on black this is hell truckers cap Putting people before profit since 1996, which turns out to be a horrible business model, 
This is Hell. You are listening to Completely Listener Supported Radio, live stream, podcast, whatever this is right now. If you want to help us out with our horrible business model, subscribe to our weekly bonus Patreon podcast, which we stream live every Friday morning at 10 Chicago time with a new monologue for me and a classic interview that is unavailable anywhere else online at this time. If you subscribe now, you get access to over 150 Patreon podcasts. It's like a whole other year, another year of This Is Hell. On last Friday's podcast exclusively for subscribers, we went back up north to small-town America and read the Houghton Lake Resorter, finding only resentment. Resentment at the government for threatening freedom of speech while ignoring how the market and armed bullying, armed bullying intimidating neighbors tear down their political signs far more than the big bad state does at this moment and in, at this time. But their utter annoyance at the unfair and unjust lives they lead isn't just anybody's fault. It's everybody's fault, which kind of explains why the only politics we have today isn't anybody but the other candidate way of viewing democracy. We also played a 2008 interview with Truth Diggs' Chris Hedges from a few weeks after Barack Obama was elected president. Chris hoped Obama would end the war on terror. We all did. Obama didn't come through. Neither did Trump. And the forever war just keeps chugging along. A Patreon subscriber, Sean, sent us a message about that conversation we had with Chris Hedges back in 2008. Chris, or Sean writes, thank you for posting an old interview with Chris Hedges this past Friday. I've been reading a number of his books lately, including America, The Farewell Tour, What Every Person Should Know About War, American Fascists, Empire of Illusion, and Death of the Liberal Class, with more on my list, including the one discussed in the interview, War is a Force That Keeps, or That Gives Us Meaning. Before I read the rest of Sean's message, Last week I did mispronounce a word in the title of Chris's book, just like I did just now. War is a force that gives us meaning, and I gave it a whole new meaning by saying the book was called War is a Farce that Gives Us Meaning, thanks to Jeff Dorchin for pointing out the mistake that I made and telling everybody on social media. Truly appreciate it, Jeff, but you can only hear me screw up force and instead blurt out farce can only hear that 2008 talk with Chris Hedges in my report on rural resentment by subscribing at patreon.com slash this is hell. Back to Sean's message real quick. When reading Hedges' book from 10 to 20 years ago today, much of it is prophetic after witnessing the direction the country has taken since then. Definitely a voice we should all heed. Looking forward to hearing more of your old interviews with him. This next bit, Sean writes, is more of a PSA that your listeners might be interested in. The daily news show, Loud and Clear, on Sputnik Radio, hosted by Brian Becker and John Kiriakou, a former guest on your show, as well as amazing producers and regular commentators Nicole Roussel and Walter Smolarek was recently canceled. For those unfamiliar, uh, Brian is a lifelong activist, and John is an ex-CIA officer who blew the whistle on the CIA torture program, which is why we had him on the show, and the only person to serve prison time over the torture program. It was hands down my favorite daily uh, political analysis, according to listener Sean, and news broadcast, one of the few that provided hard-hitting, in-depth analysis that exposed the lies and corruption of our government and media, so it came as quite a shock to hear of the cancellation. They've posted 
hosted a GoFundMe to help them launch independently. Would be a shame to lose such important voices in the fight for progress and justice. Anyone interested in helping out can find details by searching Brian Becker on Twitter or Facebook. Thank you, Chuck. So, search on Brian Becker on Twitter and help out a past guest on our show in getting his podcast back. You can hear our interview with John Kiriakou by going to our website and searching on Kiriakou, K-I-R-I-A-K-O-U. The conversation we had with John is worth a listen because he told us he was hoping Trump would win the presidency, as John believed Trump would make Mike Pompeo his CIA director, and Pompeo, an old colleague of John's, would get Trump to pardon him, which never happened. Sure, Pompeo is CIA chief, that happened, but John Kiriakou was not pardoned, and now his podcast has been canceled, too. Find out how to help John's GoFundMe by searching on Brian Becker on Twitter. We are still catching up on a lot of the email that was sent to us at Chuck at ChuckAtThisIsHell.com, AlexAtThisIsHell.com, message to us via Facebook and Twitter that came in over the holidays. If you have any guest or topic suggestion or any comments on the show at all, send them to us and we'll likely share them on air. So we got a lot over our holiday, our little break in August, and we're still catching up on all the emails that you've sent. Last week, a listener, Chris, told us they were wondering if we had any reading suggestions or other sources of information about Obama's neoliberal policies and specifically his handling of the banks in 2008 and how that gave way to the Tea Party and eventually Trump, because Chris said that he had heard such an argument made on our show and others. Chris, I said I did not know of such a book, but guess what? Another listener, Eric, does. And Eric writes, Hey Chuck, been listening since the beginning of 2019, love the show. On last Thursday's show, a listener asked about a guest that made the connection between Obama's policies and the eventual election of Donald Trump, and you said that apparently no one has written about this. I recalled immediately that Paul Street has a new book for Counter Press, uh, Counter Punch Press, Counter Punch Press, apparently digital only for now, named Hallowed Hollow Resistance, Obama, Trump, and the Politics of Appeasement, Hollow Resistance, Obama, Trump, and the Politics of Appeasement, again by Paul Street, which seems to deal with the politics. I haven't read the book yet, says listener Eric. Maybe you'd like to check it out if it makes for a good interview. Thanks for the hard work. This is how keeps me going during these hellish times, Eric. Thanks, Eric. Chris, if you are listening, that's Paul Street, and his new book is Hollow Resistance, Obama, Trump, and the Politics of Appeasement. Maybe that's the book you are looking for when it comes to Obama and the reaction to the 2008 financial collapse and the rise of the Tea Party and eventually of President Trump. Paul Street has been on our show in the past, but it was way back in the early 2000s, and those interviews are currently unavailable online. But someday we hope all of our shows will be up and accessible for free. But the only way we can do that is if we get your support at thisishell.com when you click on support. If anyone has any more suggestions on how the reaction to 2008 led to Trump, please send in yours. Thank you, Eric, and I'm certain Chris thanks you as well. We also got an email from John addressed to the guy who says his vote doesn't count in Illinois. Addressed to the guy who says his vote doesn't count in Illinois. And I think that's me as I answered the question from hell last week, which was, What will you be telling yourself when you vote for Biden? 
that I had the luxury of not having to vote for Biden because in the with the Electoral College here in Illinois, the state always goes Democrat in the presidential election. And as we have the very undemocratic Electoral College and not a popular vote, my vote for president does not count, all because both parties believe in upholding a racist institution of white supremacy and privilege more than they actually support democracy. John writes, well, not only is it a luxury to know one does not have to vote for Biden, but one could go full Monty and vote for the orange one, which would be a positive vote against the Democratic National Committee. Personally, I don't think I have the courage to do it, but some may. Signed, John. By me going full Monty, I thought John wanted me to go into the voting booth booth, and then strip and then vote Trump, as in the movie The Full Monty is about, you know, amateur male strippers. In fact, the British slang term means something else. The Full Monty actually means everything that is wanted or needed. So what John is saying, that maybe a vote for Trump is what we want or need to get rid of the leadership of the Democratic National Committee. A vote to end the hawkish centrist philosophy of neoliberalism that currently plagues DNC leadership and has now for 30 years. John, however, doesn't think he has the courage to vote for Trump. And while I may have the courage to not vote for Joe in Illinois, I'm definitely not courageous enough to vote for Trump. Like I'm not courageous enough to, let's see, jump off a tall building, step in front of a speeding train or do anything that may and in my demise, my death, like ever watching the full Monty again. Sure, it was cute, funny, and British when you saw it the first time, but now in retrospect, it's just British. That's listener feedback, and this is hell. You can email us, direct message us via Twitter, or send us something via Facebook, and we will likely share your thoughts on air and i promise to do a better read next time i don't know what was going on today coming up the 2003 invasion and occupation of iraq was not blood for oil after all alex will have some of your answers to this week's question from hell which is you look amazing what's your secret you look amazing what's your secret the person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins the new gray on black this is hell trucker's cap which you can see right now by going to this and when you click on support don't forget you can email us your answer to this week's question mail you can tweet it to us you can post it on facebook but you have to have your answer in by the end of show thursday following jeff dorchin in the moment of truth when we will be announcing this week's winner Another end of the world is possible. This is hell. Sure, Blood for Oil does have a nice hook to it, and it's easy to march to. No Blood for Oil is a great chant, and threats to oil supply have been at the heart of debates over war for some time now. But does that necessarily mean the wars in the Middle East or anywhere are Blood for Oil? Here to explain why the 2000 Iraq Iraq war was not blood for oil and hopefully tell us what the war was really about political science scholar robert vitalis is author of oil craft the myths of scarcity and security that haunt u.s energy policy welcome to this is hell robert it's great to be here how are you feeling good i'm feeling much better thank you for rescheduling with us in my horrible couple of days of illness i really appreciate it uh is it robert bob what do you want to go by sir 
Bob is fine. Bob is professor of political science at the University of Pennsylvania. His earlier books include 2007's America's Kingdom, Mythmaking on the Saudi Oil Frontier, named one of the best books of the year by The Guardian and an essential read by Foreign Affairs. More recently, Bob's 2015 book is entitled White World Order, Black Power Politics, The Birth of American International Relations. He also wrote When Capitalists Collide, Business Conflict <laughs> and the End of Empire in Egypt way back in 19. 19- You write there is the idea that the Bush administration launched a war to get or to steal Iraqi oil, but nothing remotely like that ever happened. On the day after his inauguration at the headquarters of the CIA, President Trump declared that we should have taken the oil and that maybe we'll have another chance. Yet here are just a few reasons why this idea makes no sense. It presumes that the United States needed to overthrow Saddam Hussein and install someone else in power to secure or maintain its access to oil from Basra or Kirkuk, but U.S. firms, through a little subterfuge, were already the single largest beneficiaries of the Iraqi oil that Hussein's government sold under U.N. auspices in the decade before the war. So did U.S. firms at least stand to profit more or have more control over the Iraqi oil market? Because, Bob, back in the aughts, uh, I don't know if we ever had anyone on who said it was all blood for oil, even when, asked, when the, I was talking to people who were writing on books that had blood for oil in the theme. But we definitely had many guests who said oil was the driving reason or played a major role, while others were saying it was only part of the equation, and some were even saying it's just a minor role. So did U.S. oil firms or those who were friendly with the Bush administration stand to benefit in any way from the U.S. overthrowing Saddam Hussein? Well, I don't really see how. Uh, um, it, it, you use the term would would they would these firms be able to control oil? Firms, Western firms, no longer control uh, oil anywhere. Those who control it are the oil producing countries and their ministries and or their state owned uh, uh, oil firms. The American firms, you know, American firms are there right now, right? And what they do is sell their expertise to the Iraqi oil ministry and the Iraqi state-owned oil company. In return, they're like consultants, basically. They get paid a fee for service for the most part, or they might take that out in, in, in being able to access some of the Iraqi oil that's being produced on with their, with their help in technology. But in no way do they ho- own concessions that, that allow them to control how much oil is produced and where it is shipped to, right? That's if you if we try to think about what control of oil means in the most basic sense, uh, uh, that's what I've come up with. You are you make production decisions about it. In other words, how many barrels per day should we be producing, and what mix of fuel should we be producing in our refineries, and uh, and where they and where they should be shipped to. But right now, firms all sell on a world market. Or, you know, the the basic point about the book, as you can see, is that basically oil works like any other commodity. It's sold on the same uh, future markets, uh, spot markets as as every other raw material commodity, cotton, uh, you know, copper and and so forth there's no, there's nothing special that happens or firms don't uh, western oil firms the big multinationals their competitors have no particular ability to control what the countries want to do with that oil 
do those decisions or does that decision decision making does that have anything to do with the national security of the country from which they're getting this oil whatever that country happens to be well you know favorite oil producer i mean you know or or unfavored oil producer minus saudi arabia all right um uh the saudis I mean, one of the arguments I make in the book, but this is really just economists have known this for a long time. The Saudis sell their oil at the prevailing market price. They can try to shape that price, but they have very little capacity to do that. As a, as a, as a review of Daniel Jurgen's new book in the New York Times today says, no producer has control over the oil market any longer. So what Saudis do or what Iraqis do or what Venezuelans do or what uh, you know the Emirates do is that they sell the oil they can and they have to continue to sell the oil they can because they have no other basis for a, an economy and they need the revenues that the, oil, that the oil generates for them. Why? To, you know, you, uh, name your pick to buy those weapons that uh, Mohammed bin Salman uh, is 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 loving to buy these days, or in Venezuela's case, to distribute resources to other you know would be socialist countries, etc. Um, they need the resources, or to build the prisons to uh, 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 imprison your uh, your enemies or your opposition. This has always been the case. That is why, back in 1973, when Oh, when four Arab countries declared an embargo on the United States, econom economists said, that's kooky. You know, ignore this ch uh, chant for an embargo because you can't stop selling oil to one country unless you stop selling oil to all countries. And these countries need to sell their oil. And that is exactly what happened. The embargo, the so-called embargo was was called off six months later once, you know, th there was a fig leaf or two there. But in basically uh, uh, it what the economists had predicted at the time became it was true. And it remains the case today. So you uh, well, one of the things that they were talking about when in, in the uh, lead up to the war with Iraq, God, I almost said run up, and I really hated that term at the time, and I hate that term to this day. Uh, was the, one of the things that they were saying was that the Iraqi oil industry was a nationalized oil industry, and that what what the intent was of the United States and their allies was to denationalize that oil industry, to take it over and to privatize it, and to give control again control over that oil to American firms or firms that were, you know, friendly with their uh, with American allies. Was that part of the goal? And was there a public utility at the beginning that afterwards was not a public utility after the war on Iraq? Or is that also a misleading statement? Uh, well, you know, the first part, I, you know, the first part of the question is the question you led off this interview with is the hardest one to answer. Okay, what was the real goals? What were the real goals of the George Bush uh, uh, administration in uh, occupying Iraq, right? Um, everyone says it must be, right, as you just repeated, it, if it's not all about oil, oil must have something to do with it. But here's here's the question I, I, I throw back to that one, which is if you, whoever thought that, that what the goal is, is to take over Iraq, privatize the Iraqi oil sector, and turn it into, I don't know, uh, uh, turn the clock back 90 years 
or or so when Western oil firms controlled production decisions, had the concession rights over these oil fields, et cetera. Well, if that was the vision, right? And I have no one, I know no one in the, in. I've never seen that articulated in a document or in public that anyone in the upper echelons of the Bush administration could believe that was even possible. But, but if you believe that, you were making a grave mistake. And the main proof of that is, is, well, where is that? Where, you know, or what country, in what country that is a major oil producing uh, country, is it privatized and under the control of Western oil firms any longer? The basic arrangements between states and oil firms are the same everywhere, uh, everywhere in the world. Now, what I document in the book is that once, I mean, I say something like this, once ensconced, right, in the uh, uh, provisional authority, and you probably know about this because lots of uh, journalists wrote about it, you know, the, the Bush administration started recruiting these like 20-somethings to try and run the Iraqi, you know, state, basically, right, and, and make make all sorts of crazy plans for it, right? And, and a couple of those folks imagine, hey, yeah, this would be a great idea. Let's privatize this oil. Well, guess what? They failed miserably. Right. So the vision of some 20 something running, running, a running a, an office in the coalition authority is was is not uh, the equivalent of what the high Bush administration officials were thinking back when they were planning the invasion. And we have one more piece of evidence that uh, didn't come out at the time, but came out afterwards. And I write about this in the book. Steve Call right, the investigative journalist who did great work on uh, the Afghan, the uh, war in Afghanistan and on the bin Ladens and others, uh, he basically said that the upper, the, the Bush administration, uh, the main decision makers all made the following assumption. There was nothing you had to do in order to secure access to oil from Iraq or anywhere else. You just buy it on the world market. That, that whiz, what Call says is, that view that used to be belonged to like in wonkish pieces by uh, folks who, you know, it, on 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 the outline or the fringe of understandings about oil and security had become the quiet conventional wisdom in the Bush administration by the time of 2003. I see no reason to doubt that. But the, but the point is, if someone believed something else, if someone was actually going to war in Iraq to do that, to to take over Iraqi oil and privatize it, um, they they, uh, they woke up to this you know terrible nightmare. It, it was in, something impossible to do. There's no evidence that we tried. There's no evidence that it succeeded. There's no evidence that anyone thought that's is what they want to do. The people who believe that are folks who don't really understand how oil markets work is you were just mentioning how that you know kind of like how our understanding of the oil industry is stuck in where the oil industry was 90 years ago is our understanding of how the oil industry uh, you know worked 90 years ago is that still our prevailing belief and if it is why would that still linger well well you know us is a complicated thing there does is the left 
for the most part. Now, again, I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna generalize here, and there are always and there are always um, uh, uh, what you know. Sorry, you know uh, points that contradict this one. For instance, one of the best lefty analyses after the war, written by a pla- by a group called the Platform Collective, um, basically said what I've just told you. Uh, that there's no way to privatize Iraqi oil. Um, the oil industry operating in 2003 is way different from the oil industry operating in 1950 or 60. That said, most lefties sh- certainly are still stuck in that in, in, in that belief. So, who for for the left, who, what what entity, what institution, what uh uh uh, uh you know, what's what what corporate bodies are the things that control U.S. foreign policy or that U.S. foreign policy acts in the interest of? It's the oil firms, right? In 2003, in the run up, sorry, we don't use that phrase, as the United States was heading to invade Iraq and after the invasion, you know, I had a colleague uh, giving anti-war talks. I was doing the same thing, but I was also trying to disabuse people of this idea about, you know, Oil drives us because if it is, if it if it does, boy, is that a great mistake? And we should be arguing it makes no sense. Not that uh, uh, this is the purpose, and and we need to oppose it for that purpose. We have to demonstrate that it makes no sense. But I think the government understood that it made no sense. But nonetheless, I had a colleague. He he's a specialist in Arabic literature, giving anti-war talks, and he and he, and he put forward this blight statement that Western oil firms control oil production in Saudi Arabia. And I wrote to him, right? So this is in 2003, I wrote to him and I said, do you understand that there are no Western oil firms in Saudi Arabia? Uh, They have not been allowed to participate in the sector since they were nationalized in in the 1980s, finally. So for 30 years, you've had a different political economy, but that guy, he said, "Well, it is true. I just went and I just went and picked up a book by Fred Halliday in the early 1970s, and I assumed this was still the case. And after all, and this is the part that drove me most crazy—not the mangling of the facts—we're trying to oppose a war. Does it really matter? Does the truth value of this really matter? And I think that you know that told me a lot about how folks about how folks think." So what do you think is the attraction to believing in that still remaining power of oil from 90 years ago or from 40 years ago? <laughs> what, what is the attraction to that kind of thinking? What, why would somebody on the left want to believe that it is blood for oil? Well, you know, take, my, take, take a man I admire more than virtually anyone uh, uh, alive. And uh, you've had him on your show, Noam Chomsky. He's been saying this. Right, straightforwardly, all, since the 1960s or late 1960s, early 70s, the the point in virtually every intervention in the Middle East is about the control of oil. Now you can turn and and look that those are deeply held beliefs. Uh, uh, whether you you know b- because you th- you know, you think like Brzezinski did, or you might you know on the one hand, or you think like. Uh, you know, materialist Marx, Marxian material or, or, or neo-Marxist materialists who were laying out arguments about U.S. hegemony in the 1960s and 70s and, and have not up, updated them from there. These are deeply held beliefs. They seem to resolve a problem for folks. Um, um, uh, and that problem they have is they don't believe what the government says is actually true. And there are always, right, and this is the left's basic 
you know, thing. There are always real hidden, socially driven, domestically driven interest or material interest that better explain uh, uh, the, the nature of U.S. foreign policy today. And the shorthand for that is the United States controls Iraqi oil. Noam said the United States went to Iraq in 2003 to control Iraqi oil. Every other lefty I know basically said that. And you, and, and what one wants to turn around and say to, to folks like that is, well, what, what, what do you mean by control? And you find out that um, uh, they either don't really have an answer for that, or they sidestep the question, or their answer makes no sense. It, it, they're in, it's empirically indefensible in some sense. You write that a veneer of references, footnotes, and quotations mask what is, in essence, an ideological construction, a set of deeply held pervasive beliefs about the world, together with the, with the actions these vivid truths license, op-eds, and classified memorandums, documentaries, classroom lectures, naval patrols and calls at port, journal articles, podcasts, press conferences and protests, to name a few. Call it oil craft, the close kin, not of state craft, or the art of diplomacy, but witchcraft, a modern day form of magical realism, I love that term, on the part of many diplomats included about a commodity bought and sold on the New York Mercantile Exchange and elsewhere. Why is this magical realism applied to the oil industry? What is it about the oil industry that leads society to apply this kind of magical realism? Well, some well, some parts of society, right? Other folks, you know, kind of other folks uh, see the oil firms, the oil firms for what they are. Really, they're a wealthy sector. Uh, uh, but they're a sector that's having is having increasing competition over the past uh, four or five decades, um, and they do not control all the levers of power in the United States. But but that 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 vision is hard to shake. After all, that's a vision that comes way back when you know people like Ida Tarbell were writing about Standard Oil uh, uh, and. And the Russians or the Soviets and their allies were talking about, you know, the capitalist class that dominates the state in the, in the United States, et cetera. We've hated these oil firms for, for I, decades is too short a term, right? Uh, and I'm not saying I love them, right? Uh, this, is, I'm not, this is not a brief for uh, uh, oil firms. But the notion of singling them out as really the kind of the puppet masters in some sense has a long tradition in the United States. Call it populism uh, uh, if you want. And those views are hard to shake, okay? And, they, and, and there's those sets of views on the left and and I give it I give a good example in the book, which is that in 1973, in the price revolution, you know, as the price of oil started to grow uh, exponentially during and after the 1973 October War, Yom Kippur War, um, folks then couldn't believe that the Arabs were actually capable of doing this stuff, right? And I try to explain in the book what the Arabs were actually doing. But that said, if you go back to the press at the time, and I was really struck by this when I went back and found this, no one actually believed that OPEC was the key player in, in launching this oil revolution because they believed, you know, Arabs, they're really not able to get it together to do something like this, or the Iranians and so forth. And they were so deeply 
convinced of it being the conspiracy of the oil firms themselves in alliance with the Nixon administration that had brought about uh, uh, this price rise. And what's funny about that is, you know, 60 years later, we forget, most people forget that story. And now OPEC, so-called OPEC, I'm putting that in quotation marks that were on a, on the radio show. People believe that OPEC somehow, you know, uh, is, is the organization that, you know, held the, uh, a world economy as hostage. And as my book shows, people have all sorts of these crazy ideas about what actually happened in 1973. The key one being folks write over and over again that OPEC embargoed the United States, which is or OPEC embargoed the world or OPEC embargoed uh, 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 the United States and all supporters of Israel or Japan and Europe. And all of these are, are, are demonstrably false. <laughs> it, it didn't happen. What really gets me about that is how you will hear it called the 1973 OPEC oil embargo. Uh, you can hear that 20 times a day on all these horrible history channel shows or military history channel shows or whatever. When they go back into history on this date in history, they'll still call it the 1973 OPEC oil embargo. Bob, you're a political scientist. How difficult is it to get rid of that kind of label on a historical point in time that has been so labeled continuously and repeatedly? It's incredibly difficult. I, I you know, I, I have, uh, uh, you know, uh, harbor no, you know, fantasy that somehow I am going to change the world on this because other folks have been trying to do the same thing, right? There's, there's a set of technical folks who understand this to be uh, 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 the case that OPEC itself never embargoed anyone, uh, uh, and OPEC countries loved loved those four or five Arab states that argued for uh, uh, embargoing the United States. You, you know, the per so if Saudi Arabia announces we're embargoing the United States, uh, um, whether or not they actually did, or how how important that embargo was, Iran also an OPEC member said, hey, yeah, that's great. We're going to sell the United States more oil. We'll take we'll take the market share away from you. Right. These countries were also rivals. So really, you know, in 1973, there was virtually no um, shortfall in supplies to the United States during all of that, you know, uh, uh, nonsense about the embargo that, you know, turned the world economy uh, uh, on its head. But these are deeply entrenched views, not simply on the on the uh, uh, history channel or by or by enchanted amateurs, but uh, by the society for the societies for the historians of American foreign policy or diplomatic historians. People just believe this stuff. They assume it's true. It, it, it shows up in textbooks. We repeat it. It's like, you know, it's just a myth the same way that, uh, you know, one of my favorite myths, Paul Revere, you know, rode with the lanterns, one if by land, two if by sea. We've been telling that story for a long time, though it hasn't happened. Let, let me give you one more example of this. This one might uh, resonate more with, with uh, folks listening to us. And, and it happens every day now. Um, the, the belief that 1945, the Saudis and the United States, Ibn Saud, the king of Saudi Arabia, and Franklin Delano Roosevelt, uh, the president of the United States, met on a uh, destroyer, the USS Quincy, in February 45, and cut a deal, uh, uh, arranged a, a, a bargain, uh, struck a pact, oil for security, okay? 
um, and and you know you see this embellished in all sorts of ways. I gave the example in my book of things that uh, folks in Code Pink say, uh, or or analysts in the um, on in the left wing Institute for Policy Studies. They 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 generate this whole dialogue. Uh, Roosevelt told Ibn Saud, "Look, you know, you do whatever you want to your people. We'll protect you. We're not going to interfere with you uh, uh, as long as you keep the oil flowing." Well, how do they know what? was said, where did they come up with this, uh, 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 you know, long narrative about a bargain cut at that time? There's no evidence for it. It never happened. And for 50 years after that so-called bargain happened in 1945, no book ever said anything like this about the U.S.-Saudi special relationship beginning in 1945 on the Quincy. The first time people start to say that is after 9-11. And as I explained in the book, without making it sound too conspiratorial, it's basically a Saudi-supported fiction. It's basically a Saudi fiction that Americans have come to embrace. And now you can read everywhere. Michael Moore. Um, uh, I just I just taught a book by Kim Gattas, The Black Wave, on on the rivalry between uh, uh, Iran and Saudi Arabia. And she says it right there. Roosevelt and Ibn Saud cut a deal in 1945 to trade oil for security. As I show in the book, uh, we didn't actually offer security to anyone uh, at the time. And people embellished it in all sorts of ways. They said we sold weapons. No, it didn't happen. Uh, we signed, in, we signed a, 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 a treaty with them. No, we, did not, we didn't want a treaty with them and so forth. Um, and as I and as I also show in the book, and there was no reason to go there to guarantee the flow of oil because the oil was already flowing. It, it had been, you know, we had the the Saudis, American oil firms prospecting and producing oil in Saudi Arabia were selling oil uh, on the on the market um, from about 1937 when the or 38 when the first production began and the production started ramping up toward the end of the war so there was nothing you had to do to secure oil yet everyone says this from Tom Friedman to ex-CIA agents to diplomats to journalists and I wrote to Gattas on our website and said could you just give me evidence for, for this belief of yours but of course uh, she hasn't written back so what we are told is that, again, getting back to horrible networks like the History Channel, what we're told is that power flows with oil, that Germany, Nazi Germany, lost access to oil. That's how they lost the war, and that all empires need oil in order to thrive, in order to survive, in order to expand. How important is oil as a, an imperial weapon? Um, well, you know, uh, that there are so many layers of accreted beliefs and and fictions in in that story. So what, what, and and this is one of the things that I had not realized, but discovered in writing the book, and which is why I start, I do my first chapter this way. You know, back in the day from about nine, let's say 1920 to 1970, uh, and you might remember this. I don't know how old you are, but I, I'm a, you know, I was a, I was an undergraduate in the 1970s, reading my first revisionist diplomatic histories and coming to believe them. That really, the United States' foreign policy has generally been about securing resources. So back in the day, we talked about all wars, whether whether it's the German state, the French, 
the, uh, you know, think about think about the colonial era. The whole point of colonialism was to capture all those raw materials that were absolutely essential to the functioning of the West, and we, and we needed to control them. And that was the standard line. That was the that's the that was a lefty explanation, not just lefties, an explanation for World War One: imperial rivalry over control of these raw materials. Well, I discovered something, right? We, and and so when I was taking that class in the 70s, we were te- we were reading the revisionist historians and new leftists and uh, talking about well what was the Vietnam War about, uh, control of raw materials you know and for Japan or for us etc. And yet if you notice no one talks about uh, the war in Vietnam anymore being about a war for control of raw materials. Something happened in the 70s, round about the time of the oil crisis. And as I show in the book, the oil crisis is really something that's, that people are talking about in 1971 and 72. Gas lines had already appeared. There, there were shortages way before there was any war or, or efforts by um, um, OPEC producers to raise the posted price of the oil that the Western firms were selling on the world market. Um, we've stopped talking about raw materials of all sorts, and we've kind of condensed this story into it's about one about one resource in particular, oil. And in the course of that transformation, because of what I call the trauma of 1973, basically historians have gone back and rewritten the past. So now, supposedly, all those wars were about, as you just said, were about control of one commodity in particular, oil. Um, And, you know, I try to do what I can in that book to show that that makes no sense, right? In in, in this way, uh, if you're going to war, number one, you're you're stressed about a ton of raw materials, right? You've got you've got problems if you if you're about to if you're going to make a war because that means uh, commerce is uh, uh, over, right? You know the the general workings of the market uh, collapse because states are at war with one another. So you must guarantee the security of supply of all sorts of materials. Oil certainly was not the one that was on most people's minds at the time, but it is the one in retrospect that people go back and rewrite the history to kind of emphasize, because that's the world we live in today. The world, you know, when Daniel Jurgen in 1990 published uh, The Prize, the biggest selling book about uh, uh, the the topic at the time we were in the time we were, uh, you know, uh, opposing Saddam Hussein. Uh, in his invasion of Kuwait. So, you know, during wartime, militaries are worried about all sorts of supplies. The the one that was most important, and I, and I love this little aphor, aphorism by a, by a kind of right-wing or conservative geopolitics specialist at the time. He basically sort of said, the main raw materials that any military should be con- concerned about is iron and steel, because you need to build the weapons <laughs> before you can actually... Uh, uh, propel them anywhere. And we kind of forget that story about, yeah, uh, 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 pig iron and other other vital raw materials were in equally short supply with oil. Um, for the United States, the main, the main uh, a commodity that we were most stressed about in World War II was rubber, of all things. But we don't talk about rubber being the key, you know, the key to explain to understanding world power in the 20th century. I think it's a kind of rewriting of the past to fit the world uh, uh, we are in today. And I think we're going to be rewriting that past again, (laughs) this time with 
lithium, right? That's the next uh, wars that we're going to have. Will the next war, Bob, be described to us, be sold to us as one over the scarcity of whatever new goods are the ones attracting the most spending? Well, well, if there is a war, uh, no policymaker, you know, here, here, no policymaker is going to is going to argue we're going to war in order to secure raw materials or supplies for us because that view of the world right has been generally discredited right that is how we understood what colonialism was about even though as i show it was all of that all of that need for uh uh, uh um colonies in order to secure raw materials were false you didn't need the colonies, and when push comes to shove, the colonies didn't supply what you needed. So the main proof for that is when England, you know, England fought for 30 years to try to secure oil supplies in the Middle East. We have, you know, we have book after book about talking about the United States-British rivalry in the Middle East after World War One. Well, in World War Two, where did England get its oil from? The United States, right? As as did the rest of the rest of the Allies. They got it from the Western Hemisphere, which is what military planners assumed all along. But you know, you uh, uh, you get these exaggerated fears of being cut off from things or needing to secure the supplies of things and so forth. So the government is not going to advocate that we're going to war for resources. But you already have certainly uh, uh, left thinkers saying that's precisely what's going on. Because again, we're almost we're like conditioned or programmed to believe there's some kind of material explanation uh, uh, that is the underlying truth of this pursuit of power and uh, uh, hegemony and the statements that policymakers make are not to be believed. Their lies foisted on the public, you know, in order to distract them, et cetera. So does oil, does blood for oil, does that distract us from where the real source of power is? Is that it's maybe even intentional purpose, maybe even unintentional, but is that its purpose? Is it to distract us from where the source of power really is? Well, you know, policymakers never say we're going to war for oil, right? They can't do that, right? You know, uh, uh, you remember in, in, the, in the war, um, uh, a policymaker after policymaker, spokesperson after spokesperson said, it is not about oil. It is definitely not about oil, right? Because we were all marching in the streets un- un- under those banners, right? So it is not that that is what the distraction is, okay? But it is something, it, it, it isn't, look, it is a natural, here, let me, let me stop, I'm taking a breath. Think about it. Every administration, uh, take your pick from, let's say, from Jimmy Carter on, has said the United States has a vital interest in securing access, continued access to those, to those, to that, to to the oil of the Middle East, which we're going to come to depend on more and more. And it turns out we start uh, uh, sending military forces uh, that way, and we set up the Central Command and Fifth Fleet, and we occupy Iraq and Kuwait you know, because of threats to oil supply, which the left hears instead as it's not really about threats to supply, it's about controlling these things. And then they kind of lay out an argument about control. So as the government, as government after government says, securing oil 
uh, for the, for the uh, world economy or securing the flow of oil against various threats is repeated and repeated like a mantra such like every such that you know uh, the mainstream believes it that reinforces the beliefs belief in critics that there's this is really uh, there's really a kind of more nefarious uh, 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 project at work. And, and what my book argues is what we should be arguing instead is if that's what the government is doing, seeking to secure access to oil, that it doesn't it, it's not necessary. Right. What what we should be doing is tearing a page out of of the history of the 1920s and 30s when left thought at the time, notice that these rationalizations by governments about securing access or the need to have colonies to get access made no sense. We should be saying it makes no sense. Not, of course, this is true, but it has really got a more nefarious purpose because I've not seen that nefarious purpose. And in various, you know, if you want schools of leftist thought, uh, uh, tell different stories about what that nefarious purpose is. Some talk about it's for the oil companies. They want to control these things, continue to, you know, uh, 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 increase their bottom line and so forth. Others, it's kind of like I call it the more sophisticated variant in a way, but it's not more sophisticated. Is actually what the United States does. This is a kind of famous line in, in left wing thought. The United States controls Middle East oil. And by doing that, it is able to keep its allies in check. So Germany will never seek to uh, challenge the United States or Japan or Europe as a whole because we control the oil in the Middle East. And, you know, the London Review of Books reviewers write this thing over and over again. Noam has written uh, uh, things like this over and over again. And it just, uh, you know, there's no there's no evidence for that. The only and what's what's very curious to me or what's quite interesting is it's the mirror image of what's big new Brzezinski believed. Right. Brzezinski said, you know, we've got to protect the oil because the Russians are going to come and take the oil away in uh, uh, 19 late 1970s and early 1980s in, in almost like a kind of hysterical sense. They're going to take it away. And if they take it away and control it, they will break apart the Western capitalist alliance. The Europeans will go to the Russian side. Japan will go to Russian side and so forth. And you and you just want to step back and think, does that make any sense if you if you interrogate it carefully, right? Uh, 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 you know, on the surface, you're not you're not thinking too hard about it. Seems perfectly reasonable. Looks like you're playing the risk, the game of risk on a board. But when you stop and say, okay, what is that control, or how did that work, or what proof do we have of these things, you'll find that there there, there is none, basically. We have been speaking with political science scholar Robert Vitalis, author of Oilcraft, the Myths the Myths of Scarcity and Security that Haunt U.S. Energy Policy. Bob, one last question for you. And as we do with all of our guests, our final question <laughs> is the question from hell, the question we might hate to ask, you might hate to answer. Our audience is going to hate your response. And if you can answer this question in under 72 minutes, I will be very surprised because <laughs> this is kind of the biggest question that we wanted to know at the beginning. So if it's not 
blood for oil if it's not some secret agreement the, the United States has with Middle Eastern oil powers. Why then, if it's not oil, why allow a lie? Why have an alliance with the Saudis? Why have a military presence in the Middle East if it's not all about oil? You know, in the Cold War, we were told we were going to get a peace dividend when it was over. That didn't happen. We were told that if we just had something called energy independence here in the United States, then we wouldn't have a military presence in the Middle East anymore. Now we have energy independence. We are an energy exporter because of liquefied natural gas. So why didn't we get the peace dividend? And why didn't we get an end of U.S. military presence in the Middle East when we became energy independent? Well, I think energy independence is a fiction. But we could leave, in other words, unless you erect... Right. That's a, that vision of energy independence uh, harkens back to the to you know these 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 beliefs back from a century or so ago that a country must secure a flow of a resource for itself in a way and maybe because of the the problem maybe in in the event of war and and so on we are not energy independent in the following way. Uh, as you know, um, oil prices go up and down all the time. This creates a real problem for states that really depend on oil revenues. It, it, it creates uh, terrible problems for Pennsylvania, um, the other fracking states, Louisiana, and so forth when prices decline, right? Well, having uh, uh, natural gas or any other energy source does not insulate you from those uh, price rises, Etc. Unless you erect a massive, you know, a, a protectionist barrier, and certainly the U.S. has not. So, so we will continue to we will continue to uh, uh, feel and pay the cost of every kind of vast price rise, or when the prices decline precipitously, we'll see crises in the regions that depend on on those revenues. We continue. There's there's two basic answers to the question you've raised. The first one is, well, lots of people still believe this stuff. Generals really do, for some reason, think this is how we have to think about Saudi Arabia. It's it's vital to us. We need to keep it on keep it on our side. They must be doing something for us in the in terms of supplying oil. It wouldn't it be terrible if uh, Bin Laden control the oil supply. And what my book sort of says is, well, actually, no, it wouldn't be terrible. And we have in the following way, and this is, the, this is I think, the, be the best answer to your question. All, as I started out this talk, so to saying, all oil states have to sell their oil, right? Our enemies did it and our allies did it, right? Iran needed to sell oil in the 70s. Venezuela, one of our enemies now, has been selling oil to the United States all through the course of the kind of escalating conflict. In fact, Venezuelans own refineries in the United States and so forth. So it can't be the supply of oil. Venezuela is not threatening oil supply. The Saudis don't do anything for us to either lower the price or make more oil available. They operate like every other oil state. But what is the difference between oil states that are friends and oil states that are enemies? They both have those massive resources, right? The rents, the you know, to use a technical term, but let's call it the profits generated or the you know the revenues generated from the from these oil re resources. What do the Saudis do with those oil resources versus what do the Venezuelans do? The Venezuelans uh, uh, use their wealth in part, right?
to try to undermine uh, uh, U.S. influence in Latin America and elsewhere. The Iranians uh, and the Iraqis both use their tremendous resources to try to build coalitions against U.S. interests in the region. The Saudis, on the other hand, use those tremendous resources in all sorts of ways, uh, uh, you know, uh, buy all those weapons from U.S. weapons manufacturers and so forth, uh, invest in, in treasury bonds in the United States, pay lots of PR firms. You, you, we see it all, you know, during times when, when, when uh, a crises emerge in the relationship, as when Mohammed bin Salman, you know, went and hacked, uh, ordered and had hacked to death a Jamal Khashoggi. So, so imagine... A Saudi, imagine a Saudi Arabia that's no longer a Saudi Arabia, but instead the Islamic Emirate of Arabia, right? What are they going to, and they're selling all that oil on the world market. They're not going to cut oil off because they need to sell it. Uh, we'll be able to get by uh, post Saudi Arabian oil, but the Emir, but the, but the Islamists controlling Saudi Arabia are going to use those resources for things very different from what the United States, what, from what the Saudis are doing now. So it's so if anything, as economists have some maverick economists have pointed out, it's the oil wealth, it's the wealth produced by oil that's a problem in some cases for the United States and helps to explain why we try to keep, for instance, you know the the. Uh, uh, Saudis close to us and why we might want to protect them, though there's no uh, proof that we've ever uh, uh, promised the ruling family protection, right? We've promised the territory, we promised to protect the integrity of Saudi Arabia, but as, as the best scholar on U.S.-Saudi relations says, there's no promise that the United States has ever made to keep the Al Saud in power. And if, if the Al and if the Al Saud believe that, they'd be kind of dumb to believe it because uh, think about all the other uh, moments when the United States has turned against uh, what we thought were close allies, whether it's, you know, Somoza or uh, uh, Husni Mubarak and so forth. Bob, I cannot thank you enough for being on the show today. We have been speaking with political science scholar Robert Vitalis, author of Oil Craft, The Myths of Scarcity and Security That Haunt U.S. Energy Policy. And everyone who is an anti-war activist should be reading this so they have a better understanding about how our resources work. Thank you so much for being on our show this week. It really was a pleasure. Take good care. Thank you. Money is the root of all evil, and capitalism is all about money, so you do the math. This is hell. This week's question from is, you look amazing. What's your secret? The person with our favorite answer wins the new gray on black This is Hell trucker's cap, which you can see right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. Alex, do you have any more answers to this week's question from or do you want to get the hell out of here? Uh, I missed my button. Okay, uh, yeah, yeah, I got some more. Uh, Owen JG says, ganja, 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 ganja. Uh, sorry. Um, Mike M says, I gave you five grams of penis envy mushrooms an hour ago. Everyone and everything looks amazing to you right now. <laughs> penis envy mushrooms? I'm not familiar. Uh, Aaron D says, thick layers of smoke over the Bay Area cut UV exposure by 70%, keeping skin from being sun damaged. <laughs> oh, that's sweet. Andrea J says, and that's probably my favorite response to the question, you look amazing. What's your secret? I'm dead inside. <laughs> this is Andrea J. Uh, Ronaldo M says, pasta fajoule. JC says, stand more than six feet away from the fire wildfire smoke makes me look blurry and mysterious. <laughs> like Bigfoot. Uh, Nikki says, a little smoke, a couple mirrors. 
Marco G says, avoiding the news, family gatherings, and processed food. Not sure that it actually works, though. <laughs> Kelly H says, being amazing. <laughs> the quest from hell, you look amazing. What's your secret? Adam A says, well, I live in a pretty stress-free life in mom's basement, pretending to be a former government operative who's uncovered a vast child trafficking ring that only Trump can stop on 4chan. <laughs> Dan K says, bleach injections. Fabio L says, the secret ingredient is crime. Huh. Chris L says, cancer. Jeffy D says, all fat diet. Jack W says, expediting entropy. You look amazing. What's your secret? Sean M says, look, the guy said if I didn't use the lotion, I'd get the hose again. So I use the lotion. I guess it was the good stuff. Mark AC says, I've accepted the fact that it's all going to end soon and there's nothing to lose. Meredith A says, I only use the Faustian line of skincare products. Heard you have trouble on returns with that. And then uh, finally, uh, Rodney R says, a narrow esophagus. Wow. Alex will have even more of your answers to this week's question mail on tomorrow's show. And again, we will be announcing the winner of one of our new gray and black This Is Hell Truckers caps on our Thursday show following Jeff Dorch in the Moment of Truth. So make sure you have your responses in by Thursday and you can see the cap again at thisishell.com when you click on support. We are looking for new volunteer board operators to join our staff here on This Is Hell. If you are interested in running the board, as Alex has done nearly every day for years now, as Richard has done, as Theron has done, email me at chuck at thisishell.com, chuck at thisishell.com. Alex's kid is getting older, and in-person schooling is now impossible during the pandemic, so he needs to devote far more of his time to childcare. all of which means we are looking for new volunteers to run the board and interact with me on air. If you'd like to join us here on This Is Hell, email me. Uh, this is uh, Chuck at ThisIsHell.com. This position does come with a modest stipend, so keep that in mind as well. We are looking for people who can run the board anywhere from one to two, three, four, or even all five days every week here at our studio above Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon Avenue in Chicago's West Ridge neighborhood. The show begins at 10 a.m. every morning. However, we are very flexible, and if you can only do it you know, weekly or a couple times a month, we can can work with your schedule. This is your opportunity to have access to a professional studio for your own projects as well. If you are interested in becoming a board operator here on This Is Hell, again, email me at chuck at com, which Jeffrey did this week. Jeffrey writes with... Greetings, Chuck. Not sure if I qualify, but I love the show. I live in Champaign, the city in Illinois, not the product. I live in Champaign, Illinois, which may be an issue. This opportunity sounds way better than my current job situation, though. So are open to moving, commuting. I've interacted with y'all on Twitter where I am Juice underscore Spinoza. My government name is blank. I earned the nickname Juice, said like Juice. J-O-O-S-E In college for something hilarious and stupid I'm not proud of But the name's fine So feel free to use any combination of names And now the part where Alex will say Juice, you are now hired I'm 28 A former Division I basketball player A bit overwhelmed but trying to lighten up And I'm sadly well aware that this Is 
Hell, hopefully not forever, though. So we will reach out to Juice, but for those of you like Juice who do not live in Chicago, we are going to be looking for people who can contribute to the show from afar, who can work on This Is Hell remotely. So be listening for that announcement as well. Alex, who's on tomorrow's Wednesday's live one-hour show, streaming live right here at 10 in the morning? Oh, uh, one thing, too, about looking for board operators, I just want to say, uh, you don't need to know anything. You don't even need to be smart. I can do this. <laughs> uh, you just have to be reliable. Uh, and care. That's before this board, did you, on outside of WNUR's board, had you ever run a board before? No. Same. You can figure it out. Yeah. Uh, we just need people who are reliable and care. That's w- it. Was this more difficult to learn than WNUR's? No, nah, this is way easy. See? Less things break. See? Or the more predictable things break. There this you time. go. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, it, 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 like we will train you. I will show you how to run all this stuff. It's not that hard. I also put together a giant document of just how to do everything. Uh, so, when the machines come, they can automate that job too. But uh, if you want to get involved, it's easy. Like, I got involved in the show geez like nine years ago and i just wrote randomly to say hey i'm interested in doing the show and then uh, i was running the board like two weeks later so, <laughs> uh so okay so tomorrow uh, it's a wednesday 10 o'clock central deborah potts will be on to talk about her book broken cities inside the global housing crisis finally we want to thank prudentia for going to thisishell.com and clicking on support and making a contribution to completely listener supported this is hell thank you prudentia And you, too, can show your support for This Is Hell and get hellish merchandise so you, too, can tell everyone you know this is hell. That's at thisishell.com. Click on support just like Prudentia did and get all our swag or subscribe to our Patreon podcast, thisishell.com, when you click on support. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show podcast live streaming host Chuck Mertz. Producing this week's show is Alex Jerry. Thanks to Alex for producing. Thanks to our guest, Robert Vitalis. Staring into the abyss so you don't have to, this is hell. Hell. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com.